Well, so it's a little bit hard, I think, to do a session on marriage counseling. So maybe we'll have time for the end of questions or in between, and you might have specific questions. When I'm doing marriage counseling, I really treat it as I'm counseling two individuals. I'm trying to understand what's going on in their heart. We're kind of processing different things. And I'll kind of have some typical things that I'll teach there early on that I'm not really going to address here because it just so, it's so case-by-case case dependent. It just depends on what they give me. So there's not like one size fits all. But, you know, I thought I would, in general, give you some things that would be helpful to check on. And some of you have heard this stuff before, but I think as you relate it to particular issues, as I'll do here, it'll be helpful. But you really want to find out what is the presenting problem? You know, what do they think the issue is? And you want to address that to some degree. I had one couple come, and they're so mad at each other, they, they, they couldn't even look at each other. And they thought the problem was communication. I knew it wasn't communication. I knew they didn't fear the Lord. I knew the husband didn't know anything about his role. And I knew the wife didn't know anything about her role in the marriage. But they didn't understand any of that. And so I started teaching on those sort of issues. And I was kind of new and didn't really know where to go. And I mean, the guy literally just stopped me and said, time out. You don't understand. We cannot talk to each other. If you don't help us, we're getting a divorce right now. So help us. Communicate. You know, the Lord spoke to me in that moment. And I started talking about communication. I'm joking. He didn't speak to me. Sad story, and this is the reality of counseling. That couple is now getting a divorce 13, 15 years later. And uh, I don't think the guy was a believer. That's kind of where it seems at this point. But not all counseling is a success. You know, we're not doing it uh, so that we see a certain outcome. We're doing it because we're being faithful to the Lord to bring God glory because we think it honors him and exalts Christ. It's an opportunity to do all of that. And what happens, happens. It's great when there's a marriage that sings, but that's not the goal of marriage, right? The goal of marriage is to be an accurate picture of Christ's love for the church and exalt Christ. But me as the counselor, I'm just seeking to be faithful. So, um, but you need to figure out what the presenting problem is and address that at least somewhat. Clarify goals, right? Kind of just mentioned it. Proverbs 21, 31. Let me read that to you. I don't have that one fully memorized. It says, the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Um, we want to be faithful in our counsel and leave the results up to the Lord. Uh, when we're talking with the marriage, a lot of times they'll come in and they're pointing like this. They want you to fix the problem. The marriage is frustrating to them. It's, it's chaos. There's fighting. And they want, their, they want peace. They want to finally be happy. They've been miserable for 10. I have one marriage situation. They've been married for like 40 years. And they have been uh, sleeping in separate rooms for 17 years, not holding hands for 17 years. And it, from a human perspective, it's completely hopeless. And they want me to, you know, to, you know, these, these other goals of just, can we just have some peace, not fight all the time? Well, I'm trying to help them understand that their joy is in being faithful to their God, regardless of what their spouse decides to do or not do. 
That's the goal. The goal is to bring glory to God by becoming like Jesus Christ. Their goal is faithfulness, not a certain outcome in the marriage. And we got to establish that right away because they want, you know, they're going like this. You fix him, you fix her. And I'm going, no, I want you to look at the Lord and go and be confident that your joy is in being faithful. I'm always going to talk about the biblical heart, which we're going to talk about tonight. So I'll kind of pass on that. But every counseling situation, I'm usually going to start with that unless there's some kind of crises that we need to kind of get out from under that first session. But I'll, I'll talk about the biblical heart. And then I want to just kind of find out where the problems are. Again, the personal data inventory form is going to help me with that. If I didn't have that, then I'm just going to ask questions. Uh, uh, where are the problems? What are the things going on? What does it look like? How are they fighting? Are they throwing things? Literally have one right now that they're throwing things. You know, um, when you get in arguments, what does it look like? Are you swearing? Are you cussing? You know, they're members of a, a local church. They profess to be believers. They've been received into membership into a church, but they're, you know, once they start fighting, they, they go below the belt, all that kind of stuff. So I'm trying to just figure out what am I getting into? I want to check the commitment level of, of them in the marriage. Are they, are they flirting with getting a divorce? And my findings there are going to dictate what I'm going to do next. If they want a divorce, then I'm going to teach them about the marriage covenant. I might teach them about the marriage covenant either way, um, but if they're not flirting with the divorce and they're committed like, no, we know we can't get a divorce, we want to work this out, then I might not hit this first session. But if they think that they want to get a divorce, and there's no hope, then I'm going to help strengthen and shore up their convictions here that if they don't have grounds for divorce, then, then they need to understand they're stuck with each other. So we're going to talk about marriage being God's idea. I'm taking this from notes that I had from Dr. Wayne Mack's class years ago, and I've kind of mixed so much of it with my own that I don't know what's his and what's mine, so we'll just give him all the credit. Hallelujah. Lord gets the credit, but, you know, we'll give it to him. But, you know, marriage is God's idea. Genesis 2, 24 and 25 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife are both naked and were not ashamed. Jesus reiterates that teaching in Matthew 19. says, What God has joined together, let not man separate. So God created marriage. We didn't. It wasn't our idea. It was his idea from the beginning. Um, God ordained the building blocks of society, marriage being, being that. He did this before the fall. Marriage was this beautiful uh, institution. It was perfect. God said Adam needed a helper. The two were to leave and cleave, become one flesh. That involves a commitment and it involves a covenant. In fact, to cleave uh, is used in other places in Scripture to convey the idea of loyal and faithful commitment being glued together, like Ruth's commitment to Naomi. That same word is being used there. She was gluing herself. She was committed to Naomi, and that's a lovely picture of it. Wayne Mack has given this definition of the marriage covenant. God's perspective on marriage is that when a man and a woman enter into the covenant of marriage, they are making certain formal, solemn, and binding commitments or promises to each other that they will fulfill certain obligations and perform certain actions towards each other. I would add to that definition, to the exaltation and glory of God the Father. We see that marriage is a covenant in Malachi 2.14 and Proverbs 2.17. It uses those words. Um, and so you could look those texts up and see that there. R.C. Sproul once said, if everyone followed God's word, there'd be no divorces. Submit to God's regulations if you want a happy marriage. Before you can submit to regulations, you must know them. 
And so we're trying to help couples be committed to what the Bible says about marriage. God is glorified when we obey his word. Again, the goal of marriage isn't personal happiness, but God's glory. And literally, I have to say that over and over and over again. And sometimes I'm wondering, are we speaking a different language? <laughs> Why can't you understand what I am saying? Because they come back in the next week. Well, he did this. Well, he did, she did that. Are they committed to the marriage? At the same time, I'm trying to find out, find out are they believers? One situation we have right now, the wife doesn't think the husband is a believer, and that is preventing them from joining our church. They got a daughter in the church who also doesn't think the dad's a believer. So we're hung up, but they've been coming to church. So we're, you know, part of their membership process is meeting with me. Pray for me, because I don't know what's going to happen. Listen, it's, it's very much a fiasco. But the Lord can do whatever. So I want to share with you the six P's of marriage derived from Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Uh, some of you have heard this before. But, but it really it is truths that we find in that, those passages. And I just think that it's helpful. It's a helpful way to kind of remember them. And we're just going to work through each one of them and then apply it to marriage counseling and how you would want to look for these things. And typically, there's a breakdown in one of these six P's. It's just a way to remember what God says about marriage. So the first one is the purposes of God for the marriage relationship. The next one is the priority of the marriage relationship, the purity, the perspiration required in the marriage relationship, the permanence, and the preeminence. Okay, I want to find out which of these six is causing problems. Okay, this is just kind of general speaking, you know, but like I said, I'm typically going to find out where they're sort of struggling, and I'll end up addressing maybe the wife's issues and then the husband's issues or them together. So typically, I'll start with the biblical heart, first session. Second session, we'll talk about pride and humility. Uh, a lot of times, there's a lot of arrogance in the marriage. The second, maybe the third one, we'll talk about communication and maybe anger. And really, all of those sessions are talking about the biblical heart. I want them to be heart aware. And then we'll start getting into this stuff. But I think this will just be easier for us since we're not, uh, since there's just a plethora of cases. So first, you know, we might check the purposes of marriage, and there's six of them. The first one is this grand purpose of witness for Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5.22 and following says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands love should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever aided his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two should become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Key text on marriage. Sometimes people don't know this. I've had times where I have counseled people and they didn't know any of this. I taught it to them, and they're like, oh, then that was it. That's not my situation now. Uh, people have this memorized in, in the Greek. They know the text. Uh, they're just not doing it, and they're not applying it. You know, for some reason, there's a disconnect, right? They're not applying it in their particular situation, and so that's what, what I am typically helping them with. Uh, but we could say that this is the primary purpose of marriage. Um, that marriage exists to be a witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ's love for the church. Why is this so important? Well, because 
this is uh, uh, the purpose of marriage, and it always had this purpose from the beginning. Uh, Dana and I, our first six years of marriage, uh, we were fixated on each other, and we weren't thinking about the marriage being a picture of Christ's love of the church because we didn't even, even know that that was a thing. And so we were looking to each other for fulfillment, not this purpose. And so we were just fighting like cats and dogs because uh, each of us uh, weren't uh, designed to hold all that worship, right? And so kind of understanding like, oh, there's a higher purpose to our marriage than just our own fulfillment and enjoyment in each other. Marriage always had this as its purpose. You know, so we're asking, is their marriage a compelling witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do they know this? And is there intentionality in pursuing this? Is this one of the goals? Is this something that they're thinking of? You know what? We want. It's our desire. But God has told us what one of the purposes, the main purpose of marriage is. Is that our desire? Do we desire to do that? What that does is it takes them from, the, from being the center and it puts God and his glory in the center. And then it gives them something to work towards. Now it's not all about them. Now it's about the glory of the Lord. And we want to help them be intentional in that, and that'll be a lot of what we would talk about. A second purpose that comes up that I see that is a problem in a lot of the marriages that I witness, typically after they have been married, maybe five, seven years and on. Um, counseled one, one gal whose husband was on drugs, a lot of different things had happened. You know, they, they, they got married. They were in the youth group or something like that together. Thought they were both professing believers on the same page. As time went on, things kind of started to change. And the husband essentially was a dirtball. He was a jerk. We ended up spending the first four or five sessions just weeping with those who weep and pointing uh, this lady to the God who is the God of compassion, the God who cares, the sovereign God. Psalm 46, God is her refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble helping her learn to trust the Lord um, because he is wise, he's all-knowing, he loves her, all those sort of things. That was the first uh, uh, thrust. But then what we discovered, though, is she gave up trying to pursue a friendship with this guy because he was a dirtball. She just, she just was like, you know what, I'll take care of the kids and just stop serving him, stop trying to get to know him, anything like that. And so what I would do with this, and this happens a lot of time in, in the marriage situation, they just kind of give up. Well, if they're believers, then I want to help them see that one of the purposes of God for the marriage, because it works towards Christ's love for the church, right? Christ just didn't love the church with kind of like, oh, you know, well, this is what I do. I'm obligated. Uh, he, he loved the church seeking to be friends with, with us, to love us, right? Uh, there, there's that deep friendship and it, uh, it, it's not going to be a compelling witness of the gospel to a lost world if there is no deep companionship with each other. So I want to help them see that. Malachi 2.14 uh, talks about how the wife is his companion. Uh, that word companion in English means someone you spend lots of time with. Webster says one that keeps company with another, one that accompanies another. Proverbs 2.17 talks about how the husband is the wife's companion. Okay, that's a different word used in the Hebrew than Malachi 2.14. But here in Proverbs 2.17, the word is aluf. That's what the Hebrew word is, and it means close friend. It's used in Psalm 55.13, where it says, But it is you, a man my equal, my, com my companion, my familiar friend. So my companion and my familiar friend is, is, is what's called in apposition with each other. 
One is explaining the other. They're, they're equal. My companion, what were you talking about? My familiar friend. Jeremiah 3, 4, same idea, and I think the word there, uh, friend of one's youth. It's talking about pals and buddies, true friends. Proverbs 16, 28, a whisperer separates close friends, same word. Proverbs 17, 9, he who repeats the matter separates close friends. Solomon, the Song of Solomon 5, 16, she, his mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Summarize all of that, right? Do some systematic theology here on companionship. It means pals, buddies, true friends, best friends. Not wrong for Christians to talk about soulmates. That's what husband and wife are supposed to be. This is God's design for marriage, essentially to be each other's best friends. What do best friends do? Okay, this gal had just stopped doing that. So I like to go through those verses and, and those words and do that quick word study with them because it puts teeth in it. Are you a believer? Yes. You believe the Bible's true? Yes. Does it have authority in your life? Yes. Do you have to obey it? Yes. Okay, great. That's a great place for us to start on. The Bible says that you need then to pursue being your husband's or your wife's best friend regardless of what they do. Why do you do that? Because it brings God glory. You are pleasing Him. That's where your joy is. We would hope that each of them would pursue that, and now we're getting somewhere. But even if the other one doesn't do it, it's still your joy to pursue that. And this, this gal, as, as we taught her that, she came back the next week and was just, just in tears, <clears throat> repentant. She changed. She started to love and serve her husband and pursue him and try to be his best friend. The guy didn't change like we would want to. But the marriage did get somewhat sweeter. But that wasn't the goal. She was bringing God glory. She was a testimony of the power of the gospel in this gal's life. And she honored the Lord and exalted Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. I don't know where they're at now, you know, 10 or so years later, but I think that the Lord was honored and glorified. So this kind of puts teeth uh, in that pursuit. And a lot of times what has happened is after five, seven years, they're just getting in ruts um, and they just, they're just done trying, you know, uh, so frustrated. And what has happened is they've had mis misplaced joy, right? Their joy was in their husband or their wife reciprocating their efforts toward friendship. Is that a hard situation when it's not reciprocated? Absolutely. But the Holy Spirit lives in them. They can do it by God's grace. And they're going to see that that is where their joy is. And so this gal was really struggling in her faith when she came to see us. It was like barely hanging on a thread. We met with her six months later and said, how are things are going? Oh, it's great. All I needed was just that, that tweak, you know, and realize I was just being focused on the outcome, not on how I brought God glory. And I've just seen that over and over and over again. A third purpose is children, you know, uh, counseling, maybe a doctor and a lawyer, they're wealthy, they're selfish, um, they're not pursuing this purpose, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, of children, they're thinking children are expensive, difficult. Uh, one gal said, my parents got married right out of high school, had me, and they were miserable, but now we know we have a choice. Uh, Genesis 1.26, written before the existence of the nation of Israel, this goes to everybody. Um, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth 
nor every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God created man in his own image. They were created with this purpose to expand the, the garden temple to fill the entire globe with worshipers of Yahweh. That's what they were supposed to do. And so being created in the image of God, at least, is that they were created with the capacity to be God's vice regents here on earth and also to be his sons and daughters. And those capacities to do those functions is what it means to be created in the image of God. But they were to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth with worshipers of Yahweh. That's what they're to be doing. And so they're to have children and raise them to be followers of Jesus Christ, worship of, his, of him who will then go and declare and be his image bearers, uh, his representatives on this planet and fill the globe that way. And that is their privilege. And we see that encouragement all over scripture. Uh, that helps couples understand their purpose, keeps them from being selfish. There's all these byproducts, but this is one way that they are to bring God glory and to serve him. And so that's something that we would want to check. A fourth purpose would be co-laborers, co Caretakers, you know, you got the husband. It's all his work that matters. She's just supposed to come alongside and just get on board with what he's doing. And he kind of leaves her out of it and trugs along. And he, he's got his girl, right? You know, before marriage, that's all he's focused on is how do I win the girl? How do I get the girl to say yes and marry me? Now that, now that they're married, he's got the girl. Now he's like, okay, how do I get the, you know, the, the, the American dream? Large house, two-car garage, two, two cars, you know, St. Bernard, whatever. That's what he's headed towards. And they're not co-laborers. But if you look at Genesis 128, it says God said to them. He says it to both of them. Uh, they're to be co-laborers together. Together they're to fill the earth with worshipers of Yahweh. You know, Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And then the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you should not eat from him. Need of it, and the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. And then he says, it's not good that man should be alone. Let to do this together. Uh, work the temple garden together, expand its borders across the globe. You know, if you look at Proverbs 10.31, or Proverbs 31.10 through the end there, Proverbs 31 woman, if you look through all these things, all, everything that she does is for her household. She doesn't have like her own separate thing that she's doing for her. Everything that she does is for her household. This doesn't mean that ladies can't work outside of the home, but it means that their career is not their focus. Everything they're doing is for their home. Verse 15 of Proverbs 31, she rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household. 21, she's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. That's what she's doing. That's why she's doing the things that she's doing. Uh, Ephesians 5, 25, 32, the Christian husbands understand that the wife is his helpmate. There is this we mentality to life. Not an I, not a me. Everything is our, us, together. Uh, like Kyle explained, you know, last night, you know, I did wilderness challenges in the military and you had this team of four. You could only go as fast as your slowest person. Had all these different events. It was so fun. Kayaking, whitewater rafting. And they had all these timed events. And at the end of the thing, they would just add up, you know, whoever had the shortest time wins. The last thing was this 
13-mile mountain race. We were new at it, so we didn't know you could do this, but we looked at these other teams, and their slowest person, they bungeed it around their strongest, faster runner. They had like this bungee kind of cord thing that would loop around him and then loop around this person, and he would kind of like pull, pull that person along. That's what you want to do in marriage. Um, you know, I'll pat myself on the back here a bit, but it just pops into my mind. You know, I like to run and exercise. Dana likes to, but she doesn't, it's not like the first thing on her mind. So when we go running, you know, I run at a different pace that's comfortable for me, but because we want to do it together, I'll go at her pace. You know, and then we'll get kind of close to the end of the of cul-de-sac and she'll turn around and then I'll run to the end of the cul-de-sac, turn around and then try to catch up. So I get to sprint a little bit and then I come up with her and then go her pace, right? So just kind of an example of how you want to do that in everything and go each other's pace, you know, figure out what the other person likes. And, and you're trying to find middle ground all the time so that you can do it as a we, we and everything. So marriage is like a wilderness challenge team. Ours, not mine. That might be an issue in the marriage. They might not be understanding this. They might just be going their separate ways and they have separate bank accounts and everything is, is me, mine. This is me, mine, my career, whatever. And instead of looking at, no, this is, this is us together. Uh, if the wife is a stay-at-home home mom, the husband needs to include her in everything and be like, no, this is us together. You, you know, you're helping me. I need you to help me to, to, to get through the day and bear my burdens and, and I want to bear your burdens and so forth. And if she's working, he wants to be involved and know like what her challenges are that day. A fifth purpose would be uh, comprehensive oneness. That you become one flesh, Genesis 2.24. You know, Sam thought he was being a faithful father by being a good provider. Right? He ensured the, food, the, the family had food, clothing, shelter. That's what he did. He brought home the bacon. And then he did whatever he wanted in his free time. He had fulfilled, his, in his mind, his marital duty. And he was by himself with his friends. Uh, he wasn't understanding that there was oneness in the marriage that he needed to be you know, pursuing. Now, being one doesn't mean uniformity. You know, Romans 12, 3 through 8 talks about how believers had varied gifts in the body of Christ. So it's not, it's not uniformity. It's not a clone or a carbon copy. It's not the wife not having a personality or anything like that. Uh, what it does mean, though, is uh, it's talking about at least a sexual union, uh, but it's more than that. The context there in Genesis 2 uh, talks about leaving and cleaving, and that points to this intimate relationship, right? A camaraderie what we talked about, a soulmate, life partner. You're cleaving to each other. You're glued to each other like Ruth was clinging to Naomi. Malachi 2.14, Yahweh chastises Israel for being faithless to their wives, though she is your companion, the companion of your youth. And then that same word again in Proverbs 2.17, companion. What does it mean? It's a lifelong, exclusive, comprehensive union of an entire man and woman to each other. That's Wayne Mack's definition. I think it's helpful, right? A complete, exclusive partnership of a man and a woman in every area of life as long as they both shall live. A relationship in which the husband and wife share their lives completely as long as they both shall live. And everything, my life is her business and everything in her life is my business. So they might not be doing this since you're trying to help them do that. And there's homework assignments that you can give to help them grow in that. And that's what you want to move them towards. 
Wayne Mack has a great book that covers a lot of this material. It's called Sweethearts for a Lifetime. And he has a bunch of very practical exercises that, that a person can do. They could just study, they should, could just go through that book and it would basically be kind of a self-counsel thing. But going through it with someone who would provide accountability would be great. Chapters are short, a page or two of teaching, and then it'll have several pages of basically applying this in different ways. Um, one way to think of this oneness is a sweater. You know, if you look at a sweater from a distance, it could have maybe five or six different threads that are being used, but from a distance, it kind of all looks sort of one. But then you get up close and you realize, oh, there's a bunch of different things going on here. Uh, that's, what, that's what we're hoping for in this oneness. It's cognitive, intellectual, it's emotions and feelings, so they need to be sharing these things, right? The guy who doesn't talk comes home from work. Hey, honey, how's work? Good. He is sinning against his wife. He needs to understand. It's not my opinion. It's the scriptures that talks about oneness. I didn't say the two become one flesh. I didn't say they're both supposed to be each other's best friends. Scripture says. So you're not being each other's best friend. He's not working towards that if he just says, good. He needs to share his feelings, his emotions. The person who is an intellect and reads and studies all these things, all these theologies. There's a gal in our church. I was just telling this the other day. She's getting a master's degree at, at this university in theology. Husband's not interested in it. Guess what's happening? Big time like that. And I got on her case. She's upset about me getting on her case. I'm like, well, you need to bring it down so that he can kind of understand it and share with him as you grow together. And then try to help him, you know, figure out how you can help him sort of be the spiritual leader of the home in, in ways, even though you're so far ahead of him in understanding and even desire. It's a difficult situation, but she wasn't even thinking about trying to be on the same page intellectually. Social relationships and activities. Having similar friends. When you get married, right, newlyweds, they, this is what they struggle with. He's got his friends, she's got her friends. Well, sorry, but if they're not friends together, then ditch those friends and find common friends because the marriage is first, as we'll talk about in a second. Hopefully they can include those single friends together, but sometimes that's just what is happening for the good of the marriage and all these other purposes. Work, they need to share that. Spiritually, obviously. Physical or sexual. Uh, sometimes there's health problems involved. But if they're not having sex because of health issues, they need to figure that out because they're not experiencing that oneness. They need to do that out of love for each other. And so that can be an issue. Goals and aspirations. They need to have common goals. Before they got married, his goal was to do this. Her goal was to do this. This Now when they get married, they need to be talking about, well, what do we want to do in life? We just graduated, uh, you know, our last homeschooler. Kids are kind of, you know, still around in the house. It's been fun. Um, but our things are changing. So now we're talking about, well, what do we want to do? What are we going to do? What are our ministries going to be in life? What do we kind of want to see ourselves at? And so we're trying to talk about it as a we thing. I don't want to just go do something that Dana hates. She doesn't want to go do something that I hate. But we want to love and serve each other in that. Share our difficulties and our trials with each other. Um, guys especially need help here. But sometimes that's a general, a general statement. But typically it is the guy. And we want to pay attention for that. We want to pay attention when I'm counseling people. How long have they been married? How old are they? What problems might they be facing? And then be kind of keyed into that, that that might be something that you discover. Sixth purpose is completion, right? Uh, young ladies reading too many Jane Austen novels. 
especially in homeschooling circles, because that's safe, right? So they kind of grow up and they just want their Mr. Darcy. And all they're thinking about is they deserve Mr. Darcy. And they're not thinking about what they should be. Or the husband's like, you know, the, the guy is just like, I just want this, this lady. She needs to be this and that. And they've had these discussions about what a wife should be. And he's just fixated on what, what he's trying to get, not what he should be. They ought to be concerned about giving, not getting. When that's flipped, marriage is hard for them. They're to make each other better. Sometimes people have wrong view when they get married. They just want a bargain. They want the deal. They're not concerned about being the deal. Focus on getting rather than giving. Sometimes people get married with these just unbiblical, insufficient ideas, reasons for getting married. Maybe they get married for expedience, kind of practical needs. This happens, particularly older people who, who are maybe in different stations of life. They might just get married because they want someone to help with chores, right? Well, that's, I mean, that, that's okay, but it can't be the primary reason. Or they get married for self-worth or self-esteem. Been talking to a guy who's single. He's like, he just is thinking, if I get married, people will respect me. I will have arrived in society. I will have proven my own self-worth. That's actually what they think. Or economic reasons. You know, I've seen this recently. She needs help financially. He's got a ton of kids that needs help with that. So they're looking at it going, oh, okay, well, this could be a good reason. You know, we can fit together there. Not, not wrong to be thinking those things, but wrong if that's the primary reason. Uh, or, or one needs a caretaker or one, you know, attraction. In Christian circles, this is still an issue. Uh, we have one lady that comes to mind in our church with all these singles. This gal is, is uh, just godly, oozes grace and kindness and the fruit of the Spirit all the time wise, knows the word, got all these single guys, but in their mind, she's not attractive, right? They're looking at the outward appearance. And sometimes the church doesn't confront that. We need to confront that. We, you know, First uh, Samuel 16, 7, uh, God looks at the inner man. Mankind looks at the out, outside. We need to help people think God's thoughts. So all these different reasons, we want to check those, why they might get married, it might be wrong reasons. The primary concern should be to, I want to come together so that we help each other, grow in our love for Christ, um, and, and exalt Him. Why else would you get married? You know, it, it, you know, there's for the person who's single and thinks that the worst thing in the world would be that they would be single, there's worse things than being single, if that's what you think is worse. And that is being in a bad marriage. I've seen it, I've counseled it. There's worse things. Uh, living for Christ, no matter what your situation is, is where joy is found. We already talked about that. Psalm 1611, that's where joy, joy is. Marriage isn't gonna change that. Uh, marriage is gonna change who you're doing that with and how it's gonna look like. But your joy is still nonetheless the same. Uh, Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfishness or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than your own. That's what marriage is about. Matthew 20, 26, uh, Christ said it should not be so among you, right? And who's going to, you know, all this quarreling about who's the greatest, but whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be the first among you must be your slave. We want to help them do that in marriage. Make each other better, serve each other. That's what the focus should be to the glory of God.
So that's kind of the, the, some of the purposes of, of marriage. So then on the second P there, you want to check the priority of the marriage relationship. Tons of examples here. Um, the kids become the priority. It becomes a kid-centered home. And then, then the marriage suffers. The husband and wife put up with each other because they have a common goal of raising the kids. Once the kids have been raised, now they're kind of looking at each other going, I don't, I don't like you, let alone love you. And then they get divorced. Or they get married and the wife never leaves her, her, her mom and her relationship with her mom and her siblings, you know, that is the focus. And so then they're not growing in oneness, all those kinds of things. They are not seeing that the marriage relationship is to be the priority human relationship. So you want to check that. And you'll, you'll find that out by asking questions. You know, a lot of times it's a guy and then the, his wife um, is so close with the mom that they never have any time alone. They never get to do Christmas alone or go on a, a family vacation alone. And then sometimes it's flipped the other way around. It's all his family. We see this all over scripture. You know, you kind of see it in how the books of the Bible uh, in the New Testament, Paul's like Ephesians and Colossians are put together. First three chapters are who you are in Christ. And then when it starts talking about the imperatives, the first thing that it gets to is relationships. And when it gets to relationships in the home, the highlight, what gets the emphasis is the husband-wife relationship. Uh, qualifications for pastor elders. What gets the highlight is the man's relationship with his wife. Uh, Genesis 2, 24, you see it there. Uh, you're not to have a one flesh relationship with any other human being on the planet. The priority relationship is the marriage relationship. You've got to leave. You've got to cleave. It's a commitment to remain loyal, glued to each other, all those things we talked about. One flesh in every area of life, so the marriage relationship is the priority human relationship. Not the kids, not friends, not hunting buddies, not shopping friends. And uh, so you might need to help and encourage them and, and call them to repentance if they have lost focus. And then you want to check the purity of the marriage relationship. You know, I had a guy who was cheating on his wife first seven years of marriage, seeing prostitutes the whole time. She didn't find out till seven years later. Can you imagine? Hebrews 13, 4 says, the marriage bed is to be undefiled. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Exodus 20, 14, don't commit adultery. Proverbs 5, 15 through 20, drink water from your own cistern. And, and it's a commandment to be pure in, in three areas, not just one, uh, but three areas, behavior, you know, actual practice, two, thought life. Matthew 5 there, when a man gets married, he should be committed to think of no one else except his wife. And you want to encourage the guy in particular, because they seem to struggle more than this, than ladies, but again, that's just a generalist, a general generality. You want them to battle at the area of their thought life. Um, think only of their wife. Uh, you want them also, it's also in the area of affections and desires. Only desire their mate romantically and sexually. If they don't do this, they're going to be judged by God. If they don't do this, they're going to have problems in the relationship. And so you want to find out what their commitment is to purity and how that's looking in their life, what they're committed to. For me and Dana, we made a commitment never to be with someone of the opposite sex. And that's been clunky, and I've offended many ladies in my ministry because of that. Uh, they want to talk, and I, I'm, I have to go in my office for something, and they follow me in. I turn around and walk right back out. 
What, you don't trust me? And that's kind of going around as well. Well, you, you know, recently all these things, these allegations, you know, these men just think that whatever, what, you, you, you can't control yourself. It's not that I can't control myself. It's just, I don't want Dana to ever think anything. And I love Dana so much, I don't ever want there to be any thoughts on her side or risk anything ever happening. And I don't want to be falsely accused. It doesn't have anything about me trusting that person or not. And it's not saying that, that I don't trust myself even, right? Uh, there was some allegations recently. The reason why I'm saying that is uh, some prominent gal nationally started talking about guys who would do what I just said, who wouldn't be with a woman alone. And they'd be like, well, then that guy shouldn't even be an elder. He's not qualified to be an elder because he can't even trust himself with, with being with someone who's not his wife alone. I'm like, no, you're missing that altogether. Sorry, you know, go talk to somebody who cares. I don't care about you, what you're saying. <laughs> I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, you know. So you want to help them be committed to purity and maybe they need help putting hedges in their life and so on and so forth. And so then you would help them with that. What time do we end? What's that? What are you saying? I can't, I'm deaf. 15 minutes? All right. So we're going to check the purity. We're going to check the perspiration in marriage. A couple we, we counseled, call them Sam and Sarah. They really got married thinking marriage was going to be easy. It was going to be a party. And so we kind of had to talk to them like, no, it's work. It is labor. The natural default of marriage is not bliss. If you get married and you think that, oh, it's just going to be easy and you're not going to have to work at it, the default is destruction. It requires continual positive effort. Proverbs 14, 23 says, in all toil there is profit, but mere talk when... Uh, tends only to poverty. You've got to work at marriage. First Peter 3, 1 and 2 says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay, so women need to work at marriage. Respecting sinful husbands is hard work. Men need to work at marriage. Giving her honor is hard work, right? It takes energy. It takes persistence. It takes getting my own heart right so that I desire to do what, what God would have me to do. It takes sweat. Uh, we need to think of our marriage as gardens. You know, Proverbs 24, 30 and following talks about what happens if you don't take care of your own vineyard. It kind of just falls apart. And it shows something about that person uh, you know, they're not exercising self-control. They're not being diligent. It just takes hard work. Uh, it takes hard work. Why is that? Well, because uh, husband and wife are different. They come from different backgrounds. I'm in what, what people call an interracial marriage, which is really kind of ridiculous. We just have a different tan. That's all. But we come, you know, I, I realized after we got married, for sure, I married a different culture. But everybody marries a different culture. You marry a different culture of that family. Um, one family does the unthinkable, the heretical, and on Christmas Eve, they open all their presents. <laughs> the other family does the righteous, scriptural thing, Second Samson, and they open their presents, obviously, Christmas morning. <laughs> these two come together. These two different cultures clash. What are you going to do? You got to figure something out. That's going to be a hurdle to overcome. You can't just go on default. 
So you come from these different cultures and then you also are marrying a sinner. And so we ought not to be surprised when we're sinned against and we need to be able to respond righteously to being sinned against and not be surprised. It shouldn't catch us off guard. I should be ready. Oh, but I, I mean, in our own lives, we see that, but it's kind of funny sometimes to watch counselees do this is they're just shocked that they married a sinner. Like this person is so mean and grouchy in the morning before they got their coffee. And they're like, I'm like, well, what do you expect? I mean, they're a filthy sinner. I mean, they're gonna sin against you in some way and you're just seeing it, you know, and you are as well. So you need to look at them through the lens of grace. But it takes work because of all that. And so they not not to be shocked. Uh, Fifth, we wanna check the permanence of marriage. Kind of talked about this a little bit, but Malachi 2, 13 and 16, God hates divorce. Jesus says in Matthew 19, whatever God has joined together, let no man separate. 1 Corinthians 7.10, marriage relationships is to be enduring. Wife's not to leave, divorce her husband. Um, we want to make sure that they understand that the marriage is permanent. They should be looking at themselves as Wayne Mack has given this analogy of being in a, in a high-rise building and it's on fire and there's no fire escape the elevators aren't working. There's no ladder up to the roof where you can take a helicopter. Uh, the building is going to burn down with both of you in it, or you're going to put the fire out. They need to understand that that is where they're at. Uh, ejecting is not something that is going to please the Lord. And so we want to make sure that they understand the marriage is permanent. Six, you want to check the preeminence of God in the marriage relationship. That's where their joy is, bringing God glory, exalting Christ. That Colossians 1.16 passage, that in everything Christ might be preeminent. Matthew 6.33 says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's really where I want them to be. I want them to be in the place where they love Jesus Christ. Uh, they're increasing in their love and devotion to him. And they're saying, along with, with Paul in 1 Peter 1.21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's where we want them to be. And if they're in that, then they're just like, how can I love and serve you? That's where we want them to be. And so we're gonna strive towards that. When you're doing marriage counseling, you gotta be very careful because it's really easy in marriage counseling to be problem-centered because it's just a fiasco. They're fighting, it's awful, and you just want them to have peace. I mean, if you love them, you just want them to be happy. But that's a secondary, a tertiary goal. What we really want is them to, to be passionate and zealous for Christ and his kingdom. That's what we want. We want them to, to love and enjoy their relationship with him. It's kind of like, you know, when you look at a star at night, I think it's called the autokinesis effect. But if you look at a star at night and you fixate on it, it disappears on you. So if you, if you want to really look at that star, if you want to use it for navigation or whatever, you kind of have to look to the side and then you'll be able to see it. You can't have a happy marriage by focusing on the marriage. It'll disappear. It'll dissolve on you because uh, the marriage wasn't ever created to be the, the goal in life. Exalting Christ and bringing him glory was, right? Everything was created for him to include the marriage. And so throughout it, you've got to kind of bring them back to this and try to help them individually do that. And that is really what we want for each of them. Too often, Christ isn't preeminent. Material things are preeminent. This is a big issue, right? They're focused on 
their house. They're focused on their property. They're focused on the American dream. They're, uh, they're focused on their careers. They're focused on making a buck and they're not thinking about how they can bring Christ's glory. Or they're focused on the kids and everything is the kids and they're just running around like chickens with their heads cut off. And so Christ gets the crumbs. You know, what they really wanna do is have the American dream and then they're just kind of trying to squeeze and fit Christ in where they can. Um, that, you, you want Christ to be the center and then everything flows from that or other people are preeminent. And then I'm gonna check the husband's roles, wife's roles. Sometimes the husband doesn't know what it means to be a leader. Uh, you can break this down and leader, lover, learner. He's to be that of his wife. But just when it comes to leadership, this is an area where men today are not being taught. They don't know how to do it. They've been watching video games and, and playing video games and it, and it doesn't help you become a leader. Sorry if you play video games, but it just isn't helping you. Uh, they need to understand that being a leader in the home is being a manager. Uh, the qualifications for elder kind of highlight this. He must manage his own household well. With all dignity, keeping his children submissive. This is for every person. I'm convinced that uh, 1 Timothy 3, the qualifications for elders is for, for every man in the church. Drive those principles for every woman. And I think what... Paul's aim was, is it would have been devastating for these early churches to have someone become an elder when they weren't a true believer. And so I think that these qualifications help ensure to the best of our ability, when we're not the Holy Spirit, we're not omniscient, to ensure that the people who are actually leading the church are actually indeed true believers. So I think we have those qualifications, but a leader is a manager. So the husband is to manage his household well. Uh, that word manage means to lead rule over or manage. Encourage others to develop their gifts. Uh, the wife has gifts that can help the husband in his leadership. And, and so if you're clueless on this, or if the guy you're counseling is clueless, read books on management and then apply it to your home, right? The husband's not the most qualified in every area. Some people come from traditions that the guy thinks he's got to do everything. Uh, enlist her help where she is better. Dana is intellectually sharper than I am. She has, I'm sure if we did an IQ test, it would be higher. She is quick with numbers and good with numbers and loves that actually. I hate to sit down and balance the checkbook. It is a major chore for me. She loves it. But she doesn't like to organize. I love to organize. You know, I think it's the most beautiful thing in the world. It's my spiritual gift. So if you need some organizing, I'll come and do it. You know, it's not really manly, you know, traditionally, but you know what? It has helped us over the years. So you're just trying to figure out like, okay, how can we make the team win? And the husband needs to kind of figure out how the team can win and help his wife excel in her role. Uh, a lot of times the wife is struggling in submitting. A lot of times the end of that is that she, she's not trusting the Lord. She thinks that her joy and her happiness is in her getting her way because her way in her mind is where the family will succeed. And she might be right, but she needs to trust the Lord. Let the Lord deal with the husband, right? When the Lord comes knocking on the door, if he could, I mean, he could, right? But he doesn't come knocking on the door. But you know what I'm getting at. But if the Lord comes knocking on the door and he wants to, to hold someone accountable for the, where the family is currently at, he's not asking the wife, biblically. He's asking the husband. More I could say there, but I want to stop and just ask if you have any questions for the last five minutes of marriage counseling or things you're kind of thinking of. But I'm going to check all of these things and then help them grow in it. But I also might just being 
do, do some general kind of counseling where it might be, I have one uh, set of counselees, the wife really has this people-pleasing issue. And so whenever the husband makes her look bad in front of people, she is mad and then a fight ensues. So we're helping, we're working on that with her. On his side, he's just not gentle. He's not, he's not being kind and careful and, and uh, compassionate with her. And he's not leading her well. So we're working on him on those things. And then we kind of come together and talk about both things. Any questions? Yeah, well, typically only one will come for counseling and the other just doesn't want to do it because I'll give homeworks. And as soon as they start giving homeworks and holding them accountable to doing that, the one wants to work, the, one, the other one doesn't. Well, now I know where the problem lies, but I'm going to help the one who wants to work in fulfilling their God-given duties and responsibilities to the glory of God. And that's what we'll work about. That's what we'll work on. And then I won't discuss the husband or the wife. To do so would be kind of gossip or slander. And then I want to make sure they tell the spouse who's not coming that that's what we're doing. We're not talking about them. I'm just trying to help them fulfill their God-given responsibilities to the glory of God. It gets a little bit dicey if they're both there. And I had, that, I had this just recently. And we just got to the place where I gave a simple assignment of trying to encourage the husband to be spiritual leader of the home. And it was from Wayne Mack's uh, Sweethearts for a Lifetime book. And the simple assignment was, for him to be a spiritual leader of the home was on the way home after church, discuss the sermon with your wife and ask her, what did you get from the sermon? And then share something you got. I'm so happy to see them mowing the yard, you know, weekly, right before church on Sunday. That was like something I worked towards. I'm just glad to see Kyle is, you know, carrying on the torch. It just makes me happy to. Remember how you wanted him to come, even if grass wasn't long. Exactly. Yep. It's just, what was I saying? I kind of lost where I was at. Okay, so anyways, so I gave this simple assignment, and um, guy comes back next week. I hold him accountable to this. ask how it went. He's like, these assignments, I just, I just don't like them. And he starts yelling, and he's, and he's mad at me, and He's really mad at God, but he didn't have, he didn't like, he doesn't get anything out of the sermon. He doesn't even care, right? And so as we talked about later, and I kind of knew from previously, um, she had inklings that she thought he wasn't a believer. I had met with him a bunch, and then this just convinced me he's not a believer. So I was asking him to do something that he didn't have the capacity to do. He's a dead man, spiritually. He needs life breathed into him. He got upset, sent me an email later. We're done with counseling. And I was, so we were doing marriage counseling every other week. The weeks in between, he and I were reading through Romans together. Well, in my mind, I don't consider reading through Romans counseling. In his mind, it was counseling. So when he sent me that email, apparently it was like, I'm done with everything. I'm done with you. Well, I didn't get the memo. So when I saw him on Sunday, 
I said, hey, brother, looking forward to getting together this week and reading Romans 4. And uh, he had some fear of man and didn't tell me no. And then later his wife uh, emailed uh, my wife and said, <clears throat> I don't know where the wires were crossed, but J.O. didn't get the memo and that he was done with counseling. But when J.O. talked to him about it, he was in a favorable mood and said, yeah, I'll go. So now we're reading through Romans together. <laughs> but it's not counseling. It's a Bible study, right? I mean, that's not counseling. But it does get dicey because, you know, you're kind of trying to figure this out. And we're talking in front of his wife. I don't think you're a believer. You don't love Jesus. You don't have any fear of God. But then intellectually, he's like, but I do believe the Bible is true. And I do believe Christ died on the cross for my sins. But what we found out was he thinks that God owed it to him. Because, uh, you know, so, he, he, so he's not thankful for a Savior. And he doesn't really see his need for a Savior. And so we're praying that the Holy Spirit would open his eyes. But that is where the hang-up is. Is that, you know, that right there. But I can't, I can't do it for him. And she can't either. But I can help her um, respond to the situation in a way that honors, honors the Lord. And she can bring him glory. And she can be joyful in her role, right? Does that answer your question? Not quite? I mean, I mean, it, I mean it's hard. If they're both coming and they're both believers and we think that, and then one of them is just being lazy, then I might just stop and just meet with him or her. And then we'll work on that if they're willing to. Marriage counseling kind of gets dicey because sometimes you will split things up. I like to meet with them together because then I can kind of hear from each of them how they're really doing. So I tend to try to keep them together. I know a lot of people will, will split them up and just work with the husband and the wife will work with uh, uh, the wife. Complicating problems are communication. A lot of times people think communication is the problem. Usually communication is a fruit of deeper problems. So I don't go to communication right away. But then in some cases, like, man, this guy, we, we had one where this guy just is not very good at communicating. We could see it in the session. We'd be talking about something, and then he would say something, and none of us got the message. So he needed to learn how to communicate and get the message to everybody and found out you know, he would be kind of on the, the autistic spectrum somewhere. Well, that's just good for us to know. It's going to be a little bit harder for him to communicate messages clearly, but it's not an excuse not to communicate clearly. Just make a little bit more work. Circumstances can be, can, can be uh, complicating issues, and then people that are involved can be complicating issues as well. Any other questions? I think we're kind of out of time now, but any questions with marriage, counseling? Yeah, in the back. If, if it's a pornography addiction, I'll probably just meet with them one-on-one. -on -one. Maybe we'll meet you know, initially together and find out how that's going and find out how she's handling it. I may address it both together, and I've done that in that exact situation where the husband had a pornography issue. We'll address it together and give them each different assignments. And then when we come together, we'll kind of check it out if she, you know, I might separate it out if I have a lady that can meet with her. If I don't, then we'll just do it together. 
But typically, if I find out that, that uh, the main issue is really him and she's handling it somewhat well, then I'll just meet with him. And then maybe later, session four or five, bring her back in. It just really depends on what you think would be the best given the circumstance. And, you know, we would need wisdom for these. There's not a, I don't have a, a regular practice. I know a lot of people, though, that would split it up, you know, right, off the, right at the beginning and then maybe later on bring it back. But again, I want to see them together and how they're interacting so that I can address some things. And we'll talk about this later, but I kind of will get people, once I find out what's going on, get them on a certain track. So I'd get him on like a pornography, you know, I'll, I'll counsel him on pornography. I might counsel her on her identity in Christ. It's not bound up in, in the fact that her husband is looking at pornography and, and how that can kind of damage and, and discourage her spiritually and and maybe think that her world is over and devastate her. So I'm trying to strengthen her in that. But I think it's good for the husband to understand what's, what he has done to her. Um, so I kind of want to like, I like to keep them together. And then I'll have things that, you know, so that might be the main staple of the assignments that we'll talk about. But then I'll give them something to do together. Because I still, there's still a marriage and I still want them to be doing things together. And I still want him to be the spiritual leader of the home. So maybe they'll listen to, a lecture or a sermon together and maybe take notes or they'll read an article together that's just general marriage stuff, like maybe that companionship stuff. And then I'll have them work on that together. So they're doing something separate for me, but then they're doing this thing together. That's what I prefer. Other, other questions? We're out of time. Uh, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together. Uh, we love you and thank you. Help us to be wise in our discussions with people who are having difficult times in their marriages and help us to do this for your glory and our joy. Amen.